Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Anne Brannan. Whether she is reading Chaucer or teaching students about the Iron and Pearl Pentacles, Anne Brannan brings her whole self to her work. A medievalist, writing teacher, and longtime academic, her work blends geography, science, medieval and pagan mythos, and her infectious laughter into one grand mystery and aventure. And it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Hello, darling. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm so excited to sit down with you this afternoon. Uh, there's so many things I'm going to talk about, so I'm just going to dive right in and start mm. by asking you, what is writing to you? Ah, I don't... <laughs> I think writing is breathing. Um, writing is certainly when I'm teaching, uh, when, when, I'm, when I'm teaching people about writing, I say that writing is thinking, but the first thing really that came to me when you asked that writing is breathing, that if I'm not actually writing, I'm not actually breathing. And it's a way of synthesizing what it is that I know is on the other side of everything. I think of all the artists as being um, essentially, uh, not precisely, but in, in many ways like mystics, mystics and artists, they're both, they're translators you see the world and you translate it into a different form or you see the other world and you translate it into a different form. That's what it is. And it's, um, it's crucial just for existing. Yeah. Somebody has to write, somebody has to read. Often those are the same people. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Um, but we need it because otherwise things get lost. Mm-hmm. You mentioned teaching about writing and you Actually, we're a teacher of writing, yes, and also medieval literature. Mm -hmm. Medieval literature, drama, Irish literature, and of course, I taught freshmen. I taught I taught writing continually. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and I also I taught poetry workshops. Yeah. yeah. How do you think that um, your work and your training as a medievalist and your teaching of these things, both the writing and poetry, as well as the reading of these things? has had an impact on you as a writer? Oh, it deepens everything. Um, being a medievalist is, is, of course, also being a translator. One of the most important things I did for my students was help them comprehend a world which is essentially alien. It's hard to know how alien it is when it looks so connected, and it is so connected, but it's, it's a different world entirely. And so it was continually an act of translation. All of teaching is an act of translation. Yes, and when I'm teaching writing, when I'm teaching a poetry workshop, or when I'm teaching freshmen how to um, figure out logic and make an argument, I'm teaching them how to walk into the places where their material lies and translate it. Translate it into terms that someone else can understand. Because it can just kick around in your head forever, but until you get it out on paper, until you get it articulated, it's not a communication, and it's and it doesn't have form. You need that form. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because the medium is the message. Form is all. Oh yeah, definitely. I, and 
one of the things that comes out, I think, of your work as a medievalist is this concept of aventure. Mm-hmm. And I, I want you to talk about that because it's such a core part of your work. And it's something that I think so many could benefit from, but don't even know exists. Yes, I love aventure. Um, I had been a medievalist for many years, uh, teaching literature when I, it really it began to really strike me, looking at the Middle English word aventure, that although it comes down to us as the word adventure, and it's still in French as aventure, but it, in English it comes down to us as adventure, it's not the same thing. And I began to really pay attention to it. And I saw that when we say adventure now, we are talking about something that we actually have a lot of control over. We can have, let's go have an adventure. We go to Mount Everest and join the boneyard, or we so we have an adventure. We're going to get in the car. We go up to Shemayo. We do something, but we, we figure it out. We have the adventure. I'd like a ticket on the boat, and we say so. But aventure does not mean that in the Middle Ages. When it shows up, and it shows up in lots of different um, texts continually. What it means is a kind of, um, it's a kind of gift from someplace else. It's a chance to do something. So that, for instance, uh, love is an aventure. Falling in love is always an aventure. Uh, pretty, you know, it's something that comes from elsewhere. We can say to ourselves, I will go and fall in love. I will, you know, but it doesn't really work that way. It comes to us. And when it shows up in literature, the, the most famous example I've, I can give you is the Holy Grail. So, you know, you don't, you might go looking for the Holy Grail, but that's only after the aventure has happened, which is that you're sitting around having dinner with a bunch of friends and this giant cup sort of walks through the room. This is not a thing from this world. And everybody goes, woohoo! And then they go off on their aventures, their, which we would call adventures now. They go off on the aventures. And the aventures can end well or badly or be fun or not fun. That's sort of ir- irrelevant to the process. What's important is that you're given a chance to do something. And that chance has come from elsewhere. And you either take it or you don't. Because you could, after all, see the Holy Grail come through and say to yourself, eh, not today, I am so busy, (laughs) and just not go. But if you do go, and you're one of the knights of the round table, you might be somebody who fails completely, like Lancelot, or you might be somebody who basically completely loses the focus and goes and whacks people like Gawain. You might be someone who, who actually gets to where you see the Grail, but then you forget to ask the question you're supposed to ask, and so it's gone. Or you might be Galahad, in which case you actually get to see the Grail and you get to go to heaven. And so I'm sure that's very nice. Although it's sort of the most boring of all the stories. Really, the failure stories are so much more interesting. But the idea for me, when I, you know, when I, I realized that, you know, I put the word aventure to it because it's a really good word. It comes from the solid tradition and it makes sense. But I have lived my entire life by aventure. I trust those doors that open all of a sudden in the world. I trust them. It's how I ended up how I ended up making all the big changes in my life. And all of them, although some of them have been sometimes problematic, all of them have been worthwhile. I would not have I would not say no to any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
this work of aventure comes into what you do as a coach and mm. how you work with others to recognize these opportunities and make the choice or not choose to take them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that my coaching, um, I really love, I really love coaching because I get to work with people so deeply um, one-on-one uh, and it's usually for, for working with me for a really relatively short time, although often people come in and out of it, but I work with coaching or I teach classes online uh, about how to, how it is to recognize aventura because all of us have had aventures in my terms although we don't we haven't necessarily always paid attention to them the more you pay attention to them the more you can see them and the more conscious choice you can have about whether or not to take them mm, absolutely i want to switch gears a little and talk about another aspect of your coaching uh, which is an element of spiritual coaching. You come mm. out of the reclaiming tradition, mm-hmm. which comes out of the fairy tradition, and you have a long history of teaching and practicing in that tradition. Yeah, 34 years. Yep. I'm curious how that comes into the work that you do. <laughs> it, it, it never can't come into any work I do, really, I think. Oh, when I am, when I'm I teach classes that specifically about magic online, so that's one thing. So that's possible. But when I'm coaching, uh, I I'm only really I think useful to people who are interested in having the spiritual aspect of their lives inform the decisions that they're making, and so uh, that is good because I can I can help recognize the doors and I can give. Um, I can ask questions that help open them. And I also, um, when I'm coaching, I will sometimes switch uh, my hats and I'll say, um, I, I have some, I can hear some stuff coming in from elsewhere. Are you interested? Um, invariably people are. And then I can, sometimes there's stuff that comes in from someplace else. And if I have it, if it's there to say, uh, and if my client's interested, I share it. And I also can, um, I also can give advice, homeworks, for instance, I, you know, to, to, that are based on, uh, the craft as I learned it, you know, I just, I might, I might, for instance, um, say, okay, your homework for this week is to make, uh, an altar, um, for a job, (laughs) your job altar, what, you know, this, and where you collect all the sacred images that, come to you about the kind of job you want that kind of work mm-hmm. and mm. and you also i think have this sense of um the places that you live informing and coming into the work that you do and you a while back moved from western pennsylvania to new mexico Mm-hmm. which is a radically different landscape. And I think that there must be a way that that transition geographically has had an impact on your work as a coach, but also as a writer. And mm. I'm curious how living... And as a witch. Yes, and definitely as a witch. And I, I'm curious how that geographic transition has affected you. Oh, that's a lovely question. Thank you. 
Uh, it's affected me really, really deeply and in ways that I anticipated and did not anticipate. Uh, I came home. Uh, I wasn't born in Albuquerque, but I grew up here and I was gone for nearly 40 years, 16 years in the Bay Area, 22 in Pittsburgh, and um, walked out of a tenure track job when I got given a uh, retirement package a severance package that worked. And my wife also walked out of a tenure track job. She's in the law school here and I have come home and uh, it's, there's not a day here where I'm not so grateful to be home. Uh, this is, this is what my inner landscape, this vastness, the dryness, the sun, um, the extreme intensity of line and color, <laughs> I'm home. But it has not been without its problems. I seem to be working through health issues at a level I hadn't worked through before. And I also, I'm back uh, where my family of origin is, and um, it is an extremely um, interesting family, but it's not enormously well. And so uh, I've I've come back to work through my um, issues uh, of dependency and codependency at a, at a deeper level than I even had had to work them for the last thirty three years. It's been interesting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, the answer to this is that um, it's affected me profoundly, and yet I cannot yet articulate exactly what's happening. I think I'll know more as time goes on. Mm -hmm. I'd love it if you might share some of your writing with us. <laughs> I will. I will. I, um, uh, I've been, uh, these are, I've, I picked out some things to read for you. These are three, uh, little poems from out of a, uh, the newest stuff that I'm interested in. I, I've done various sorts of things, but this, um, I'm really interested in how it is you can, a poet can actually um, authentically address the intersection of language and science. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in. So I've been working on these and uh, I'll share some with you. The first is called uh, Burning the Toast. Uh, and it concerns the issues of how it is that we tell time and whether or not we actually can tell time. Burning the toast. Sand rolls down the glass funnel of the timer to the moment when breakfast coheres, more or less, and the factory bell chimes nine. Kronos winds himself up, and you could set your atomic watch. The cesium heart of a satellite reads microwaves, which, had the ions been cooled to absolute zero, would lose one second a millennium. Not bad. We progress. But over in the labs, the invariably decaying isotopes vary, always before the sun flares, sending unknown particles out ahead, swaying readings which cannot sway. Kronos gives up. Beyond the corner of stars, the goddess of letting go opens the window and throws out the toast. <laughs> this next is called Finishing the Milky Way. 
and um, it concerns the fact that the um, galaxy galaxy is expanding, because <laughs> you know it is. Finishing the Milky Way, Orion's belt slowly unclasps, hindering pursuit of the Pleiades who grow further apart. They don't meet at holidays around the massive table of the gods, having given up on love in their wild dash across the universe, and poor Cassopia, hanging upside down in her chair of stars, whirls apart in happy dissolution. All that light coming in on the night sky stretched so far we can't see it, the fabric of the expanding universe disappearing from human sight. From the south of the globe, the holes in the Milky Way widen slowly. It's all perspective. The twilight of the gods falls in imperceptible haste as the Milky Way spreads itself out, stirred lazily into the cup of stars. And my last one for you, the speed of gravity. Um, this, this was the first, actually, of them all because um, I heard... I've heard somebody make the remark, the speed of gravity is equal to the speed of light. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? And anyway, so I went to look it up. Somebody said, well, of course it is. Who? I mean, I'm like, well, really? How do we know? The speed of gravity. The speed of gravity is equal to the speed of light or not. Physicists argue. The force increases immediately, some say. A delay would unstable orbits contradict the math, but calculations vex and measurements here on the blue hole are useless. We need a supernova. We need to catch the neutrino burst, the radiation, and later observe the celestial light show. Apples falling from trees won't do. And there's no one to petition, no god of gravity to send revelation. We forgot to invent one, being concerned with crops and love affairs which prosper and die, while gravity abides, holding us tight, pulling us down. We await illumination. Lying with our backs to the trusted earth, safe in the spin, we watch the sky like moviegoers, tossing popcorn in the air to catch when it falls inevitably down. Mm. There you go, Vinita. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Mm. The best advice I've ever received. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because immediately I saw three channels from which the advice comes. One is me, because the best, best advice from me I've ever received is never name the well from which you will not drink. <laughs> and one is other people, and that slides, doesn't it? But really, the best advice I ever get, really, I will tell you this, the truth. Uh, there's a voice which says things to me, and it has said many interesting things, which are very useful. It's the voice of Aventure, and it has said things like, you know, go back to school, or it has said things like, move to Pittsburgh. But the best thing it ever said to me was, stop drinking. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the work that you teach online mm. and the year of Aventure. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I have classes online. There's an Aventure class which runs whenever you want. It's I work through the Rizuku platform, and so you sign up, and then every 
the classes last about six weeks each, and every week there's um, lessons that get released uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, and um, there'll be uh, several uh, pages where I'm saying various things or giving homework, and there's always a guided meditation. And uh, there's a, you can like converse with me in the um, in within the class itself. There's a place to talk to me, and I write back. And then at the if this isn't true for the avatar class, but for the rest of the classes, at the in, every week I read some medieval literature on in the original language if it's one that I actually read. So I don't read the Welsh, for instance, but uh, other things I can read. And, <laughs> I don't know why that is, except that the voice said I was supposed to do that. So there you are. There's medieval lit, whatever it's in there. And uh, I have really enjoyed those because it's a way of being able to actually, um, I, I'm, I, it's a bit way of being able to actually um, teach the craft without being right there. This has been an issue since I left San Francisco. I was in San Francisco. I was in the heart of the reclaiming community. I was teaching all over. And then in Pittsburgh, it took a long time. I taught uh, some classes in Pittsburgh, uh, very few and far between. It was, and now I'm in Albuquerque where I haven't lived there 40 years. And I have no, um, there's no one, there's not a community that I'm practicing with here. So this gives me a way to, Outreach and, and I like that. That's very nice. So anyway, so there was the Aventur class, and then the voices wanted me to start a year of Aventur. So I did, and it had a much bigger plan to it than is actually happening, because I was going to be inventing over the course of this year a new class every six weeks. Uh, well, my health kind of got in the way because <laughs> it was a lot of work, and so what I have now are classes that um, start running every high holidays so that there's some there's they're running now so it's too late to, to get in them right now but uh the next ones will start um at mabon about um around around the 22nd of september and then there'll be another uh they'll start again at um Solon down at the end of october and those classes are um an elements class for people who uh are either new to who essentially people who are new to the craft. Then Iron Pentacle, uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the classic reclaiming classes, um, and it's about the fairy tool of um, meditation. And the Pearl Pentacle class, which is the Iron Pentacle um, moved on up to the community level. And I'm also, I've also invented a class on time as an element, working with the magical element of time. And I also have a... Um, a beginning tarot class. I think that you could take it if you knew the tarot, but I think really it's focused for beginners and it's called Fool's Aventure. The so using the tarot as an aventure. And it's a, a really, I, I'm very fond of it because it's a, I think it's a very good way of um, getting comfortable with the tarot without the booklets and just kind of working with the tarot and enjoying it. So yeah, so those are going on now. And yeah, yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the guided meditations are, um, uh, yeah, I think they're one of the, I think they're really worth the price of admission. Yeah, because you can download them, you can um, keep them. And every week there's a new guided meditation, whichever class you're in, to focus on some aspect of what's going on that week. Fabulous. As, so that for time, for instance, there'll be, I, I know there's, there's different meditations throughout the uh, six weeks of working with time that focus on different aspects of time, cyclical time, uh, time in this particular world, the way in which time moves through eternity, the things we expect about time. Uh, yeah, I like my time work. <laughs> so I want to talk a little about what it means to be in the academic world. And and you were in the academic world for 20 years? Well, 22 years as a professor, and, and however many years of study before that, six, I think, for the doctorate, yeah. Two for the MA, four for the BA, yeah. <laughs> however many years that is, that's numbers. Yeah, for well over 20 years. And you thrived in that world in many ways, but also, I think, being in that academic world has a profound impact on our work as writers and mm -hmm. as teachers and mm -hmm. in the way that we translate things. And I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Uh, I, I loved being a professor. I adored being a professor. I, I love teaching so much. And I used to always say that really I was not getting paid all the time in the classroom. I was not getting paid for that. I was getting paid for the reading papers and the meetings that I was getting paid for. Because <laughs> you're like going and talking about Chaucer. I don't need money for that. I'll just talk about Chaucer. <laughs> but there are aspects to the structure, and it has become more and more so since I first started um, in academia, uh, that bother me. So as, for instance, the issue that when I started as a professor, maybe about a third of the classes uh, of the university classes across America were taught by part-time um, professors, uh, which we call adjuncts. And now it's up to 75 that um, something's profoundly wrong with that. And it has to do with um, money and uh, not giving people benefits. And uh it's it's not okay. So so I became it became more and more problematic for me to be helping students um, finish their dissertations and when it when they started walking out into a world where they essentially were probably not going to be able to get jobs in that field doing what they wanted. I don't think you need to be in academia because you have a doctorate, but I. I do think that, you know, certainly most of my students had expected that they would be. And, and for a long time, it was okay. And then it wasn't. So that's a problem. So I miss teaching Chaucer, um, which is probably why I've um, been allowed by the voices to stick medieval lit into my, <laughs> into my online audio. I will now read from Chaucer. <laughs> that's probably why that's going on. But I do like, I, I still am continuing to teach, um, but I'm not, I'm not grading papers anymore. If I was to be, I'm considering ways in which I can put together uh, writing workshops, um, you know, more writing retreats, 
and we can work on writing, but I'm not going to grade anything. Mm. I'm not giving people any more grades. So that is a nice aspect of it. I like that. As for the writing itself, one of the things um, I realized, I have a uh, I have a collection of poems uh, earlier than the ones that I read to you today that concern um, walk, going into myths from various different directions. And, uh, and I love that collection very much. And almost all of those poems have been published. And I've put together a chapbook and it's, it just has not found a home. It's just incredibly difficult to find a home. So there's that about publishing, but I realized that I, this issue of self-publishing, for instance, if I'm in academia, I cannot self-publish because it's not going to count. It's not going to count for a promotion. It's not going to count for tenure. It's just not going to count. But I'm not in academia. And so I'm planning now on putting those, you know, putting the poems together, figuring out some way of making them become a, a thing which can be handed out or sold because I need to be able to hand them out. And it's okay with me. It's okay with me if I don't have giant credentials about it. It doesn't have to be true anymore because that's not where I am. So there's a freedom in that. There's, yeah. yeah, and I think that there's a way we can get almost devoured by uh, the credentials and the the letters behind our names and the importance that other people put on them. When when really when we're writers, the importance for us is telling the story and getting the stories out there. Yeah, 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 that's really. And the thing was even I have to say even even if I'm not getting them out there, quite frankly, it's just like the main thing is actually telling the story. And then you have this thing that, you know, it's like, eh, I was like, let's go back to the and do this. And then you get them out. That's nice. I like that part. But for instance, um, I'm going to be teaching at the uh, November um, witch camp, the Reclaiming Witch Camp. Uh, Alice in Wonderland is this theme. It's going to be down in Texas. And I thought, you know, it would really make a lot of sense because I thought, well, there's be a bardic circle, which, you know, which is the new name for the talent show. And I thought, well, I'll read some poems. I thought it would make a lot of sense if I had, if I could like sell my little book of poems. But I have no little book of poems because <laughs> I will load, unload. These poems are excellent. I will make you a book of poems. And like, I'm going to make a book of poems. And then I can just say yes for however many of you know, would you like this book of poems? I, you know, yes, I would like to say, well, I'd be with. So it would be good to have it. Or if I'm giving readings, it would be good to have a thing to hand around. And yeah. I'm tired of waiting on, you know, the, I'm tired of waiting on the chapbook contest. So it's like, oh, forget it. <laughs> well, and I think also there's, there is this way that self-publishing or just making something in many ways feels almost more genuine. Than, than what we have turned publishing into, which is waiting for someone else to say, this is good enough for me to put in this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think there's that struggle of, um, there's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of love for publishing. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, I'm totally, I'm extremely excited about all the stuff that gets published, that I get published. Oh, yeah. And at the same time, not finding a home 
for a body of work doesn't mean that it shouldn't be out in the world, like you said. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we, we were, yeah, like our, our friend Star, uh, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the sequel to The Fifth <laughs> Sacred Thing. And, you know, the publishers are like, oh, no, there's not anybody to read it. Well, there are some people to read it, and so there's a kickstarting. But and guess what? There's going to be enough money to to because Star wanted it edited. You know that's the thing. That's the thing about the, the about um, the one thing about self publishing. If you you know you you want to find people who can work with you to to give you an outside voice. That's the deal. You know, mm-hmm. that's for me the deal because a, um an outside voice is really really useful. In um the uh, fall issue of creative nonfiction, for instance, and the I just loved working with the editor because she everything had to get nailed down and she she had me rewrite the ending, mm-hmm. I think, four times. It's like it you know, wasn't there yet, wasn't there yet, wasn't there yet. I and right at the point where I thought I cannot I cannot go any further into this. This is as far as I can go. She said, oh, this is great. Thanks. I'm like, thank God, because I didn't know what I was going to tell her next. Yeah. And I think having an outside editor is critical, I think, to the process, because, you know, some people talk about how, oh, well, you see a piece so many times you just start to, you know, your eyes start to glaze over and you can't really see it in a new light anymore. And I think for for those of us who do editing work, for I know myself as a developmental editor, getting in there and and having no attachment is a really important thing for me because it's not my story to tell. It's just my story to get at the core of. Right, right. You know, it, it's my job to say, is this really what you're talking about? Or are you actually trying to tell this story? And to be able to go in there I know for me as a writer, when I'm working with an editor, it vastly changes my work. Yeah, I really honor the editors. I really do. It's it's hard work. I will not I will not joke yeah. about that. Being an editor is hard work. Yeah. Yeah. But it's I definitely think for me it's some of the most rewarding work to be able to go in and really sit down with a writer and say, you know, this is this is where you want to go with it. Let's get it there. Right, right. It's and it's essentially what I was doing with all my writing students when I was teaching. It's the same mm-hmm. thing I did with freshmen. You know, it's like you your thesis is thus and such, but actually that's not what you believe. Well, it's what I think I should argue. Yeah, well, don't argue it because you don't think it's true. Right. <laughs> You've got to actually. Here's what you're actually saying. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you're devouring these days. Uh-huh. Interesting. What am I devouring? Uh, well, in that case, here's what I'm devouring. The biggest thing I'm devouring is genealogy. I seem to have gotten, I seem to have gotten stuck into the Jenny World Tree, which is this kind of like, it's the Wikipedia of genealogy, which just infuriates some of the users because they don't want you to mess with their tree. I just got a notice from somebody today. Why are you messing with my tree? I'm like, it's like, this is a world tree. This is not your tree. It's like, not like your dead people only belong to you. You silly silly person. But anyway, so I, I'm devouring genealogy and learning a lot of, I've had to learn a lot of Scottish history. I've been doing many things like that. Yeah, that's my, that's my big 
thing right now these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dead. <laughs> I want to give you a chance to uh, maybe share some of your intuitive wisdom with listeners. <laughs> I want to give you a chance to invite them into the living room with us and to speak directly to them. And so this is my chance to do that. Dear loves, I have no idea who you are or where you are or what time you find yourself in. I know that we are cousins because we are all descendants of the mitochondrial DNA. I know that we are connected in ways that I will probably never know. And here are the things that I am able to say to you. Never name the well from which you will not drink. The things that seem so far away are often the very things that we are headed toward. The things that seem impossible are often the very things that are on the other side of a door that is just right there, just right there. It is true. It is true that we influence all of the reality that happens to us. It is not true that we create our entire reality. How could it be we live on the planet with all of these other cousins that we are connected to? We are all creating at once. And the rocks, the trees, the stars create also. We are all in this together. Nevertheless, it is also true that either despite this or because of this, When we send out our energy, when we put out our hand, when we look for that door to open, that door is actually there somewhere. That's it. Mm. Thank you. Mm. I am so thrilled that we got to spend this time together today and just love sharing your work and your wisdom with others. If listeners want to learn more about you, coaching with you and all of your work, they can find you online at annbrannon.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in her room.com you'll find show notes learn how to work with me and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep in her room on the air next week on in her room we'll talk with memoirist and two-time stonewall award winner ellis avery i'm sarah blackthorne let's tell our stories together